at 13, but I'd love to put it to you this way. My first drunk I chased for 10 years. I finally hit the point of surrender at the age of 23. It wasn't a long ride, but it sure as hell was bumpy. That I know for sure. And it wasn't without uh, incident and uh, a lot of you know, work to work through by the time I finally got sober. I'm one of seven kids. Um, parents were very busy, seven kids, eight years, do the math. Obviously not a lot of TV going on in the house. And um, I'd like to tell you that um, my parents gave me a beautiful toolbox when I got into this world. They gave me the things I needed to make it way, my way through life. You know, uh, they taught me about prayer and they taught me about quiet time and, you know, the good quality uh, attributes that we need to be what I would call, you know, decent adults. Um, and, you know, it's kind of funny. I've reconnected with some kids I grew up with. It's really sad to say this 40 something years ago uh, that, you know, we were young and we reconnected and, you um, we had a pretty idyllic childhood. I mean, I grew up uh, outside of Boston in a really small town called New Bedford, Mass. Uh, I'm originally from New York. And um, for seven, eight years, I lived in this small, old, it was an old manufacturing town. It was a famous whaling town. And it had just uh, a very inherent, weird sort of charm. And, you know, the neighborhood had 50 plus kids. so you know, you were never bored. And um, I would like to tell you that I feel very fortunate today. There was a time I could not see the good from the bad, the forest from the trees as it related to growing up. I had a decent childhood, you know, it was noisy, it was chaotic. Uh, drink was not forbidden. I mean, Sundays were my favorite days. Uh, we were you know, piled up into an old ugly station wagon. We went to church, we came home, we had to stay dressed up in our little church clothes. And we all got a little glass of wine at dinner to learn the proper etiquette. I think it was the only day my mom got to see us be proper, um, not shoveling food in our face like monsters. And, uh, and I love Sundays because I helped clean up the dinner table and I got to drink the little wine glasses of all those that didn't finish it. And it was delightful. I'm not sure what I thought it was, but I knew it tasted good. And, um, you know, I mean, it just, it wasn't, you know, didn't do anything at that point, but it sure tasted nice. But I shared this point, not for anything other than it begins the cycle in my life that I held on to. By about 10, 11 years old, there was some abuse that started happening uh, to me as a child. And I learned the fine art of keeping secrets, right? So here I am, a potential alcoholic in waiting. I go from the outgoing, gregarious, crazy, in-your-face kid to a very sullen, quiet, uh, secretive child and no one knows why, and no one would ever find out until up 50, 20 years ago when it came out. And um, so, you know, at 13, we moved to Montreal uh, in between a move to Florida and then up to Montreal. So that was culture shock.
And um, I, I met up with people that started drinking at a very young age. We were 13. We stole what we drank. We were very, uh, you know, creative on how we got things done. And um, I remember being uh, on a ski trip. I lied my way to it. So I was already real good at that um, and started drinking. And I don't remember the trip. I don't remember skiing, but I certainly remember that flask that stayed with me the whole day. And I joke about this, but it's somewhat truthful. I remember my first drunk better than my first kiss. So that tells you how paramount drinking was as compared to the first kiss, right? That was one of those milestones in my life that kind of got dismissed because booze showed up. And booze was a lot more fabulous and more fun than the first kiss with the boy in the orange grove that I punched and ran away from. So that was my romantic first kiss. And um, when I tell you I chased it for 10 years, I somehow made it through school. Uh, I started really chasing after things. And I, it was funny, I was on a meeting earlier today about step four uh, instincts. You know, my instincts for more was that I wanted more and more. And by the way, I needed more. So give me more. Everything was more, right? You know, one wasn't enough. Everything was more. And I felt that by the time I was at that point of the awakening and I knew how to use what I would consider this goofy sex appeal, I was in and out of people's lives like uh, a bug, you know? I didn't stay, I didn't, I didn't uh, you know, create or have relationships with people that were meaningful. It was fast and it was furious. And, um, you know, it was a lot of insanity. So I went to college and um, after the first year of drinking and going to school, the school called my parents and asked them to please come and take me back, that I was not welcomed back anymore. Um, and I understand why. And I remember my dad coming to get me. Um, I was propped up in a corner of the dorm room. Uh, my girlfriends had packed my bags and uh, I was just lit like on fire with booze. I don't remember really other than the drive home was very quiet. My dad was my protector. You know, my dad was the one that I could maneuver things out of. My mother was the strong, you know, keep things in line woman. And, and she was, um, they were perplexed with me, you know. Um, everyone else was kind of moving on with their life, going to school, getting married, making babies. And I'm living at home and trying to figure out what am I gonna do when I grow up. And um, well, I found a great sales job and I was in and out of sales for a long time drinking and, um, and I was a bar hopper. So if you didn't find me at my parents' house, there was a bar in Tampa that had my name on that seat. And at the age of you know 20, I was already kind of a fixture. And I would sit there and write poetry and thought I looked very intriguing, you know, I was drunk. I mean, there was nothing intriguing about me. I was trying to find someone that would buy the rest of my drinks because 
nine times out of 10 cases, I was broke. So I would charm you and tell you how great of a poet I was and this ex you know, exciting life, but I was living at mommy and daddy's house. And you never knew that part of my story till you asked to come to my house. And I'd be like, no, let's go to yours because I can't bring someone to my mommy and daddy's house, right? So here I am just full-blown drunk at 20. Everything is beginning to fall apart. Uh, the nice guy that my parents fixed me up with, uh, my mother finally tells him, just go away from her, she's dangerous. She was right. And so, you know, there is kind of a, a funny thing that starts to happen. The folks of AA somehow start showing up in my life. Not like I was praying for you guys to show up, uh, but my life was getting pretty bad. I was pretty much drinking more than doing anything else. I was somewhat athletic prior to full on drinking and I dismissed those things, those things that brought me joy. I love to write, I began to not write. Um, and so my dad, the fixer, decides that a nice little Catholic boy might be the right elixir for me. Maybe he will bring me out of my sordid spots in my bad places and make me somewhat respectable. And so I, go on this date because I'm trying to please my father. And um, this poor guy, you know, he should have known. I was already toasted because I don't know about the rest of you, but you know, you had to drink to put the makeup on. Now that didn't mean the makeup looked good. It meant you made a well-rounded effort to show up for this date. And um, you know, I was already half in the bag. We go to dinner, I order my drinks. He has a nice tea. I order more drinks. He has a water. He decides we need to pray. This is getting a little weird for this girl. So I have another drink while he prays. And, um, you know, the date was miserable. We ended it early and I called a backup plan and there I went. But of course he called back. And to make my father happy, I said, sure, I'll go out with you. Well. On our second date, he shows up and says he's going to pick up a few guys so we can all go out. And I was like, okay, I'm open. Now, you know, it's a pretty insane drunk girl. Uh, we proceed to drive to this very kind of obscure, ugly building. And we walk in and I find out that this bum, that's what I, wasn't the word I actually used, uh, took me to my first AA meeting. So you might have a problem if on your second date, you're introduced to Alcoholics Anonymous, you may have a slight problem. Um, I didn't stay in the meeting. I uh, went to a bar down the street. He eventually picked me up. That relationship didn't last very long. I can tell you thereafter, uh, maybe a couple of weeks and that was it. So, you know, geographical cures, changing places, changing things, people. I moved to Miami in the 80s because of course I figured money would solve my problem. Now I've never, I could never like put my finger on what the problem was, but you know, my parents had sent me to psychiatrist and they never really got the full Monty on my drinking behavior, but there was all these other things I kept placing blame on kind of like what the book talks about. 
I placed blame on a lot of circumstances and things for where I was at that moment, right? I didn't want to look inward. Lord knows I didn't want to go there. So I looked outward and I figured if I could move from one place to another, I'd get better. And so I did. And I showed up like I would normally do, charming and and gregarious and, you know, made friends. And then, you know, it became apparent when I couldn't even leave the office, get in my car and drive home because I was too drunk to leave the parking lot from work, uh, that there may be a problem. I mean, I didn't think anyone noticed that when they pulled up to work the next day that I was still in my car sleeping from the night before that, you know, they would notice me. I just figured if I poofed up my big hair, we'd be okay, no one would know, but they knew. And so there was a guy there that um, gave me a number one day and um, the number eventually I called was Telcoholics Anonymous. I'm like, okay, really? I don't need AA, right? A I'm not a drunk. You don't understand. I went through everyone's suitcases that used to come visit my parents. The nuns in the family with their drinks and their bottles in their suitcases, those were the drunks. I'm not a drunk, you know? But of course, everything is falling apart. I've moved from the nice place to the little dump. Uh, the people that I had dated, they were just scrambling away. I mean, you know, there was a guy I dated once that said, God, you're so much fun when you don't drink. And I just couldn't, I just didn't get that. I just thought he was, you know, a boring rat for saying that, right? How do you have fun without a drink? But the reality was I wasn't really having fun. I was drinking because I had to drink. I was drinking because that was my solution. It did something for me that nothing or no one else could do. It began to make me feel whole and yet it boomeranged. By the end of my drinking, uh, I remember sitting at a bar at six in the morning with this guy that I borrowed from his wife, because I had such great traits. Uh, and he looked at me and said, you know, AA didn't work for me, but it might work for you. So it's like, this is like the third knock on the door. This is like pissing me off. And um, I eventually used that phone number. You know, things were getting bad. My family asked me not to show up anymore. Uh, I had a propensity for driving on people's lawns to get to their front door, literally, right up to the house. Um, you know, people moved when I came down the street because sidewalks and roads all kind of became one. And and I was I was a mastermind of creating a fight so I could leave. So I wasn't really welcomed. And the person that I was dating in Miami who was on the DUI task force, which is kind of funny, finally told me I'm done. So here I am alone in a dump. And uh, I called the number that that guy gave me. Now I'd love to tell you I was very original. So I thought uh, I called the number and I said, I'm calling for a friend. Of course they laughed. And I asked for the textbooks of AA so that they could read the material. And I think I thought you took a test and then boop, you got really sober or something. I don't know. 
And I don't even know if I knew what I was calling for. I just knew that at 21, hearing voices, moving furniture in the middle of the night because you were afraid of being alone, um, not really even having a phone number to call anymore to anyone, and knowing that you didn't have enough booze in your house to make it through the night was a pretty scary proposition. It's horrific. And I, I didn't want my life to be this way. I had a suspicion it might be better. I used to drive through those fancy neighborhoods and see people, you know, cutting grass and talking to each other. And I was jealous. I was riddled with jealousy, yet I did nothing to get there. So I called the number and they asked me to come visit. It took me three hours to get ready. Like I said, I every once in a while would go running and there was a building four blocks away from where I lived and there was always people outside of it and they were always smoking and drinking coffee and I thought, ooh, something scary is going on in there. Well, that was the building I pulled up to. And it was the Coral Gables room in Miami, Florida. And um, I went in and I would love to tell you that I stayed. I stayed to get one thing which obviously had a permanent impact on my life. I heard laughter. I heard people laughing from the gut, not the fake laugh at the bar, not the pretend laugh so that you could woo someone into bed and try to get money from them or try to get drink from them or just not be alone. It was the genuine laugh of people that were living and I had no clue what I was feeling, but I knew that was different. It was mesmerizing. I was told I showed up two weeks later in a blackout. The following week, I was told that my neighbors were excited to meet me. So little did I know the building I moved into, the people below me were in AA. The guy that lived beside me was in AA. The dude across the hallway was also a member of Alcoholics Anonymous and they were cheering because I was the girl that was too damn lazy to go downstairs and throw my stuff in the trash bins. I'd throw it out the window, my bottles, you know, in a used empty car lot. So it was disastrous for that car lot and it was quite noisy for the neighbors. So they were thrilled. The, the, they were praying the furniture moving was gonna stop at two in the morning and the bottles being flung out the window was gonna stop. and sleeping in the hallway of the apartment would end. They were thrilled, they were praying, their prayers were answered, so they thought. And yet for another year and a half, I drank and I went to meetings. I would show up in my heels with my beautiful crap suit with burn marks in it and try to be glamorous walking into AA. I had no clue really why I was there other than I was desperate for something and I didn't even know what the hell I was desperate for. I was empty and that you kept telling me to come back and you would suggest maybe tonight just don't drink. And I would go, absolutely, I'm not gonna drink. Of course I had a bottle in my pocketbook, you know, my purse, uh, but I was, I'd vow it on, right? Vow and pledges. Um, that day came, you know, um, the day came when my last drunk brought me to my knees. 
I woke up in the hospital room, wasn't the first time, and I was strapped down. And they had me next to this like two-way mirror. And I remember looking at the reflection of this person looking back at me and I realized I didn't even know who the hell she was. I actually like looked and looked back and realized that's me. Uh, I, I remember uh, the doctor came in and said, if you drink again, you're gonna die. You're at the late stages of alcoholism. I had heard things like that. I had heard the scare tactics. I had heard people give me all the emotional frothy appeal like the book talks about that doesn't work for people like us. But this doctor spoke truth. There was a couple of people in those AA meetings that when they spoke, I actually listened. You know, I still didn't get for a long time the first drink got you drunk. Now that one eluded me, but I'm a little slow in the uptake sometimes. But when I heard her say that, I, I believed it for the first time. I believed that I had a choice. And I don't even know other than it was just a window of opportunity where there was a shift. It was that silent and subtle that I looked at her and I said, I'm done, I need help. And I was told there were 10 people with AA sitting out in the emergency room waiting for me because that's what AA people do. We show up even for that sick, chronic, chaotic, disturbing, meeting, disturbing alcoholic like me. And you put your hand out to mine and you said, come home. And that's what I did. And that started my journey on August 18 of 87. And I don't know why it always hits me. But I need to tell you the amount of gratitude today that I have for that turning point in my life is probably more today than when I had my first year of sobriety. And I think it's because now I realize how close I was to the bitter end and how disillusioned I was even in my first year. I um, detoxed in a hotel room with someone I was kicking the can with, nice way of saying, the last affair of my drinking. And I was invited home to my parents' house, which was an amazing thing. God was working. He was working on their scene and on my scene. I moved home and uh, I remember pulling up to the driveway. Of course, she told me, you can only bring what you can put in your car. Now I'm a drunk girl. <laughs> there was a lot of junk in that apartment, not meaningful, I can assure you. But somehow I showed up with like a lamp and pots and pans. I didn't cook guys, okay, that was for show. And uh, you know, just junk. And uh, when I got out of my car, I looked at her and I saw the look of, that she saw a broken kid coming home. But they allowed me in. She was real clear though, one drink your ass is on the street, we're done. And I'm grateful today that my mother didn't play with me. I'm grateful that there was a balance between the yin and the yang, that my dad kind of softened it a little bit, but my mother kept it coming. She kept it real. Within a couple of days, I went to my first AA meeting in a very small town in Lakeland, Florida. It's like going from Miami Vice 
to, if you know, US television, like hee-haw. It was like, what the hell had happened? I was transported into this small country town and I thought I had died, but you know, I was desperate. And I said, I'll do anything you tell me to do. I went to my first meeting, told them I was visiting because I still had an ego. I didn't say I was new. They asked me to get up and share my story. Within five minutes, someone walked up and gently moved me back to the table and said, we'll talk to you after the meeting. I was like, oh, okay. After the meeting, I was presented with my first sponsor. I didn't even have the luxury of asking for a sponsor. She just showed up and we were as different as night and day. I had spiked hair with crazy colors all over it and my leather jacket thinking I was all that in a bag of chips. And she had this little country outfit on and I thought, this is not gonna work. And yet that's the magic of AA. Sometimes as a buddy of mine who was from the Bronx, New York would say, his sponsor was the pig farmer and he was the junkie from New York. And boy, what magic those two brought together in AA. That's how this works, right? This woman did something in my life that still today has been an imprint on my soul. She guided me through the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. She sat with me. She did exactly what the book shows us how to do on working with others. She met my inconsistencies and chaotic nature by sharing her story with me. It was her way of saying, you know, you're not that original. <laughs> she didn't say that. I'm sure she did. I didn't hear that. Uh, but what she was trying to tell me is you're not alone. And, you know, the great news is that people in AA are sneaky. I'm just going to give you a heads up if you're new. When meetings begin to open back up or if you're invited to host a Zoom meeting, uh, I remember being given a key about three months sober and they said, here's the key for the Monday night meeting. And I went, okay, I'll make the coffee and I'll open the door. And they said, oh, no, no, it's for a year. For a year, I got crap to do. Now, mind you, I'm unemployed, living at my parents' house, and I don't really have a social agenda to speak of, right? Because I'm trying to get sober. I'm still learning how to brush my teeth and take a shower without having a drink, drive the car without putting a bottle in the back, you know? I'm just learning the basics. But I'm telling you the early service work, whatever it is, saved me. It kept me preoccupied and kept me close to the people of AA. It kept me in the middle. And that basis has been still a magnificent jump spot for me in my sobriety. I can tell you that it's hard to give you 33 years in a very short minute, but I'll highlight some things for you. You know, I think the journey that I've learned is that the greatest gift I can give anyone is the gift of the hand, the hand up, the hand of AA, the message of AA. I always tell my sponsees, my job really is this. I'm gonna grab your hand, you're gonna put it in mine. I'm gonna put my hand in my higher powers hand and the, the deal is to connect you two up hook you up, right? And that's gonna happen through the process of the steps 
and helping others and doing the deal. I never promise a rose garden in AA, but I certainly put one message out there. If you stay in the middle of AA, miraculous shit will happen. And excuse my language, but sometimes you just gotta keep it real. Magic happens. And the magic is that when the good happens and we stay sober, that is part of the gifts of AA. It's a degree of humility I never had in my life. It's about learning to give thanks and being grateful and knowing that everything I have is on loan to me, right? I worked hard to get to where I am, but it's because of you. You taught me how to be a better worker, daughter, sister, you know, wife, friend. But also when the tough times come, is my foundation solid enough for those moments when it's between me and a God of my understanding? And that has been my journey the last seven years. In the last seven years, um, I, I lost uh, a sponsor um, that I pretty much walked with till the end of her journey in sobriety. She was 30 years sober. She was an amazing lady. Her name was Betty Davis. Uh, and she, she packed a punch. She took me on a spiritual journey in AA. She kept it real simple. And she got me into service work in a way that really helped me form uh, this gift in my life. Just the knowing. But when she passed, it was a real blow to me. Because she taught me how to reconnect to my family of origin, my mom particularly, because we struggled a lot. We're very much alike. And, um, and I'm grateful today for that conduit, how God used her to bring me closer to AA, but closer to my family. But the family has been a journey. There's one sister in particular that I've, I've had to just release to God right? But I think that's part of the healing and it's part of the journey. And it's taken me a long time to get there. I have learned that there are things that I wanted to get done in the first couple of years. I'm going to bang through these amends. Everything's going to be wonderful. Damn it, we're going to have a party. You know, it doesn't always happen that way. Some of my amends were made when they were supposed to be made 20 years later. You know, if I'm really trying to do the course of action as outlined, if I'm really availing myself to the source in my life, sometimes it's in the wait that I hear what I need to hear. And sometimes what I think I needed to go amend for, it's not what it is. The other thing was, is that uh, within a matter of like a year, my... Um, um, my brother passed away and within 10 months, it was like five other family members, including my dad. And my dad was on a journey with Alzheimer's. And, um, you know, there's one gift that I'm most grateful for is the gift of the healing in the family with my parents and I, we became close. 
And um, my dad and I um, kind of formed an interesting bond when he was going through Alzheimer's near the end. He was like the little kid and I was like his best bud, you know, I got him out of trouble with all the candy wrappers in the house, you know, it was that simple, it was that sweet. But I was with my dad the moment he passed. I was home alone with him. And I think about um, when I first got to AA, what I wanted. You know, I wanted to look cuter and I wanted money and I wanted the house and, you know, maybe someone to show up and make my life feel good. You know, I wanted to feel important. And some of those things happened, but not on my schedule and not for the reasons I wanted them to happen. They happened because work was done on my end. You know, I had to stop borrowing people's husbands, you know, and become a real partner in a relationship. I had to stop being demanding on people and asking them to take care of me in my life and make everything better. I had to show up like the traditions have taught me and be responsible for my financial and in my participation in life. I had to learn that I had to get okay with me before I could bring anyone else into that circle. And I had to be accountable and show up in AA, not like a visitor, but a participant in the circle of AA. And from that, the gift of being at my dad's bedside was really highlighted. I think about it today and I think about two things. One, the gift of being sober and being with my dad as he transitioned. That was something had you told me, I would have told you I can't do. And yet my HP showed up and you all in your, you know, your own way, the energy of AA showed up and I was able to be that daughter up until his last breath. And there was no business left to be managed. We were good. Amends work. Same with my brother. But the other thing that I think is very poignant for me to realize is that, you know, without AA, Everything in my life I have is meaningless. AA is the fuel of what I have in my life. My alcoholism brought me to my knees. Drink was the problem up until I hit the doors of AA. Anything I needed, wanted, desired, all the chaos that I caused, you know, most all the time, drink was involved. And then I get sober. And I'm just drier than dry. And you guys put fuel back in my life through the process of the steps. And it doesn't mean I'm perfect. Lord knows I am not perfect. I've made great mistakes in AA. I've done some goofy stuff in AA. I've traveled the world in AA. I've lived in AA. I've loved, I've cried. I've sat with someone on the verge of wanting a drink and we together went through that night together with the God of our understanding. 
you gave me a toolbox and you have gently put tools in my toolbox one at a time and you continue to do that. I don't ever want to outgrow this plan of action. I don't ever want to forget what I was granted and graced with. I don't take this lightly. There are many people right now in all the streets of the cities we come from that are dying of alcoholism. Some are in fancy mansions, hiding. Some are on park benches. They're us. And why I'm not out there, I don't know. But I do know one thing. When the invitation the last time showed up to join Alcoholics Anonymous, I don't know if it was me or God that answered, but I said yes. And every morning I wake up and do my practice, it is my way of saying yes. And when I was asked to show up today, although sometimes I get nervous about speaking, I said yes, because they have told me I am responsible. I need to be a member of AA and I need to show up and do the deal. And I get to live a charmed life today. Yeah, I've got nice things today, but boy, I can look in that mirror, even with those little wrinkles showing up, go, you're good. And what I mean by that is, I'm no longer afraid to look myself in the eyes. I'm okay with me today. I know I'm not without imperfection, but I'm okay with the imperfection because you have shown me that if I stay and do the deal, that it's just continuous, right? For one Kleenex out, defect, another one pops up. I mean, that's just part of the package still staying sober. Right? We're not saints. And thank God. So I thank you all for allowing me this opportunity to be with you this evening. I love London, by the way. I've traveled there a number of times with my old job and mm, had so much fun. So I hope to go back soon someday. And uh, thank you again for the honor of being with you this evening. Thank you. Uh, thank you so 